So next week, Lord willing, we will, I know, I'm sad to see Romans 3 go too. <laughs> but there's more to come in Romans 4. Now remember, the central feature of Romans 3, and especially uh, beginning verse 21 and on through verse 31, is found in verses 24 and 25, which is the cross, and that's what we've been talking about. And it's through that cross that we receive all these saving benefits as God's people, the things that we have been talking about. It's through the cross as the only way that we could be saved. And that's really what it's talking about here. This is the way God had to do it. And this is the way God has done it. And the cross is the central component and feature of our salvation and of the gospel. It's why we could sing so freely of the songs this morning that speak of the cross of Jesus Christ and those results that we can be forgiven and have all of these blessings in this right relationship of God. It comes through the cross. So Paul is helping us understand the cross. And it's good news after so many verses that we went through, way back beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, that really just hammer home the fact that we are sinners and that we needed to be saved. And then verse 21 breaks in with the good news of how God has done that through his son, through the cross of Jesus so let's read verse 21, and we'll read once again through the end of the chapter. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. All right, let's pause and pray and we'll dive in. Father, as we expressed earlier in our scripture reading, we both delight in your truth and we are dependent upon you to comprehend and apply your truth. So we pray that you would help us now and gift me uh, to be able to teach this passage and to talk about propitiation in a way that would be accurate to the text 
and to which you would agree. And so I pray that you would guide me now as I teach and proclaim. And I pray, especially once again, that as we're thinking about the cross of Christ, every conscience in here would be cleansed and faith brought about in Jesus or renewed and bolstered and that your love for us demonstrated through Jesus and the cross would be poured out in our hearts and that we, our hearts would burn within us as we think about what you have done for us in Christ. So I'm asking those things specifically in the name of Jesus, amen. Now, <clears throat> I don't know if you remember this or not, those of you who are here, but when we went through the Gospel of Matthew and we got towards the end and we started approaching the actual cross uh, where Jesus, of course, went through the trials and was betrayed over and, and uh, hung on the cross, I, I told you something very important in how to read those accounts as well now, and I'm including in that how to read portions of Scripture like this that talk about what was happening on the cross. And I use for this John chapter 10. So if we could put this up uh, for just a second here. Jesus is talking about himself here before the cross, of course. And he says, I am the good shepherd. So he wants this imagery now of him a shepherd and we his sheep. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, Jesus is here talking to those people who are opposing him. And um, presumably, his disciples are around, and they are his sheep, of course. And he says, I know them, and they know me. And then he talks about other sheep that weren't present among them at the time because he's talking about sheep from another fold. Remember, all those men like Peter and James and John and Matthew and others, they were all Jews. And what he's saying here is, I have other sheep that are not from Israel, and I'm going to bring them in also. I'm going to gather them in, okay? So he's talking about us. He's talking about mainly in this room here, non-Jews or Gentiles. But I want you to catch this feature that he very much knew those who were his own, his sheep, both those that were right there, those disciples, and the ones to come. And he says very clearly... I lay down my life for the sheep. And what I said with that, as you're reading through the gospel, and you get to that point where Jesus is about to go to the cross, what you need to do is you need to not just look at that generally anymore. You don't just look at it as this, generally Jesus went to the cross and died for sinners. You have permission, based on the scriptures, to see that he specifically went to the cross for you. that he knew his own and he knew the ones for whom he was going to go to the cross and redeem and 
propitiate for their sins. This was very clear in the mind of Jesus. As a matter of fact, he boldly says to those men who are rejecting him, right there in John chapter 10, he says, looks at him, he says, you don't believe in me because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. My sheep follow me, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So in doing that then, you're looking to Jesus specifically as we read in Romans 3 about the cross and as you read in your gospel and your daily Bible reading, I'm across cross and you're saying, he went to the cross for me and for my sins. And that means that all of the results of the cross are for me. Friends, that's what's called saving faith. See, you can have a general belief that Jesus died for sinners. I had that for 25 years of my life. Just this general, oh yeah, I believed Jesus. Yeah, he's the son of God. He died for sinners. But it wasn't until the spirit flipped the switch in my heart, I was convinced of my sinfulness, all of a sudden saw, wait a minute, I need a savior. And I was led right to Jesus on the cross and realize there for the first time, Jesus died for my sins. That's saving faith. So everything that we're talking about here, as, as Paul emphasizes this need for faith now in Jesus, this is how this is all going to flood to you, is through faith in Jesus Christ, understand then that's the distinction. You're seeing him at the cross for you. That's what you need to be seeing. And you have permission, Christian, then to just rejoice. If you're already a Christian, you just rejoice in this fact. That everything he did was accomplished for me on the cross. So, I wanted to begin with that so that we're viewing these things as true believers in Christ, understanding that all of it was for us, and therefore, from God, all of the blessings of salvation come to us through Jesus. Like, we talked about justification, right? Justification being a courtroom term. When God justifies us, he declares us righteous. It's like we've never sinned and we've always done right. And it happens when you come to faith in Christ, he justifies you. We don't even have to wait now till the final judgment to determine if, God's, if we're justified, if we're gonna stand righteous because it's not a, a, due to our works at all or anything that we do. It's all based on grace alone. Remember, we walked through the passage. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That's all in that paragraph. That's how one is justified before God and that's the only way one is justified before God. Beginning next week, we'll, we'll just demonstrate that in Abraham and his faith in chapter four. So there's justification. If you haven't heard those messages, you can go back and listen to those. And then last week, we looked at redemption. Remember this word, redemption? Um, as he says, we're justified by his grace, verse 24, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Your justification, your right standing before God is free for you, right? It's, it's given as a gift by his grace, but it wasn't free. It cost. Christ had to go to the cross and pay the price for your sins to set you free from them. It was slave market terminology of Paul's day. Somebody could be enslaved. Let's say they owe somebody too much money. They now become that person's a servant. They're enslaved. They're no longer free. Somebody could come along, pay the ransom price for that person, and they go away scot-free. Nothing else is owed. 
The account's been settled. It's been erased. And you remember the results for you, Christian, of redemption on the cross? Forgiveness. Paul says, in him, Ephesians 1, in him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. I hope as you were even singing this morning, you could rejoice in the fact and just delight in the fact that though you have sinned, though you do sin, and though you will sin, you are a forgiven person. Why? Because of the redemption that we have in Christ. He paid the price, was exalted to the right hand of God. We even read this, and he sat down at the right hand of God. No more sacrifice needs to be made for your sin. That's redemption. And then this morning, I want to look at this very unusual word in verse 25, a word I'd be willing to bet you've never used in common conversation in your whole life. The only time you might have used this word is if you were studying your Bible in certain translations. Now, some of you, if you don't have the English Standard Version in your lap, you have some other translation, you may have another translation, which I personally think is inferior, and I'll show you why I think that is. (laughs) The ESV is the superior translation in this instance because they got it right. And it's the word propitiation, verse 25. Listen to this. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It's that, here's this scary term, theological word, right? Propitiation. And it might be something you think and you go, I don't really know what that means, but I don't really need to know because that's for theology people, or that's for pastors, right? Paul didn't think so. That's why he was writing it to the entire church, right? The entire church of Rome was supposed to understand what that word meant, and they would have, because it was a very understandable term to them. The word propitiation in the common language of the Greek-speaking world and of Paul's day meant this, it was something, a propitiation was something that served as an instrument for regaining the goodwill of a deity or a god. So remember now here you're dealing with, you're dealing with first century Roman pagan people. They had many gods, okay? And, and so they would have stories or accounts or ideas or thoughts about a god or a deity who was, had become unhappy with them about something. He was angry. Maybe they had done something they shouldn't have done, and now this deity is angry. And so in order to make this deity not angry anymore, that is, turn away his anger from them, they had to offer some kind of offering or sacrifice to make propitiation. And that sacrifice was a propitiation that would satisfy the anger of the deity and now no longer is this deity angry with them. With a little bit of nuance we can apply that meaning of that word, just the general meaning that the Roman, average Greek-speaking Roman listening to Paul as he wrote this, of course it was in Greek originally, and they're listening to this read, they would have understood what that meant and how it applied to the cross of Jesus. Remember the entire context of this, the whole section 
that ended at chapter 3, verse 20, before we got in the good news, started back in chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul said, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And then he displayed how that happens. And then he goes to prove how we're all under sin and therefore under the very wrath of God, you see. And what Paul is teaching here is that our sins, of course, have evoked the wrath of God, but God, here's the glorious news, put forward or displayed publicly his own son on the cross as the wrath-absorbing sacrifice. So what was Jesus doing on the cross, friends? He was absorbing the righteous wrath of God that was due to you and me. You see, the, the wrath of God, we can't, when we think of that word wrath, we often think of the wrath of human beings, which is always bad and always wrong and always sinful. Our wrath is because we get angry about something and it's usually not even something righteous and we fly off the, the handle and we're displaying this outburst of anger. We're, we're displaying this wrath and it's never right. So oftentimes... Bible teachers have trouble ascribing wrath to God because they think of wrath as sinful. And often it is. As a matter of fact, Paul said, you Christian must put away wrath. It's not for you. But God's wrath is God's wrath. And it is righteous. As a matter of fact, you could say that God's wrath is the righteous response to sin. It's his righteous indignation towards sin and rebellion and the breaking of his law. It's, it's good in that if he didn't have this wrath for sin, then he wouldn't be God and he wouldn't be righteous. Wrath, God's righteous wrath is the reason there's a hell. As uncomfortable it is to talk about, the place of hell where sinners go forever. And there, what are they experiencing forever but the righteous wrath of God? Oftentimes in the scripture, it's pictured as fire. You know, the lake of fire that burns forever and ever. It's the concept, it's the idea of God's righteous indignation for sin. And the biggest problem we have, we looked at this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, our very natures, remember, evoke this righteous wrath. That's a problem. But the great news of the gospel, Christian, is this that God put forth Christ Jesus on the cross as a propitiation by his blood. So on the cross, he was, he was propitiating. 
He was bearing that righteous wrath so that there's none left for us. The great result of this propitiation and what Jesus did is that God's disposition towards us has changed. It has gone from one of wrath, righteous wrath, to grace, love, mercy, sonship. He is the propitiation. So if somebody were to ask you, hey, I'm reading through Romans, and there's this weird word here, propitiation. What does it mean that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood? You would say, well, he was absorbing the wrath of God that I deserved. So that now I'll never face the wrath of God no matter what I do even in the things that happen in my life that are not pleasant, the things that are often painful, the trials I endure, I would never attribute that to God's wrath towards me. God's wrath has been satisfied in Christ. I mean, isn't this what we sing when we sing in Christ alone? I have a slide for this line. It says, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin of mine. On him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. See, the wrath of God was satisfied as Christ Jesus was on the cross dying. And now from now on, for the rest of your life, when you sing in Christ alone and you come to that line, immediately then you should be thinking, Romans chapter 3 Verse 25, propitiation, there it is. Matter of fact, maybe on our slides we should put in brackets that you don't sing. (laughs) The wrath of God was satisfied, propitiation. Jesus bore that wrath for me. The result of propitiation then is God's disposition towards his people is turned from wrath to grace, from alienation to reconciliation you see, from children of wrath to children of his love forever and ever. It's a wonderful thing. We sing in another song, All I Have is Christ, which is my favorite song. And it says, but as I ran my hellbound race indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. If you were to go onto YouTube and Google, all I have is Christ animation. Okay, don't do it now. I better not see that posted on like Facebook or something at, you know, 11 a.m. from somebody. But if you were to go in and Google that, all I have is Christ, uh, animation. There's somebody had put together a, um, uh, to this song, being played and sung, an animation. It's really kind of cool. It's fun to watch. It's fun to look at. But the, the picture that they have for this line sticks out to me and always has since I saw it a number of years ago. Let's put that up, Amber. This is the picture of propitiation. So here you have 
On the right, my right, you have Christ on the cross, and you see that fire he's absorbing? That's this author's imagination of the wrath of God being utterly poured out on Christ. And we, the sinner, are standing there in that flame of God's fury and wrath that we deserve the hell, the eternal hell that should be ours doesn't touch us <laughs> because it was all propitiated in Jesus Christ. He is our propitiation. The author to the Hebrews said, our God is a consuming fire. But friends, the good news of the gospel is that God put forth his son who absorbed that fiery wrath and has extinguished it for all those who would ever believe in him. It's a perfect propitiation. All the wrath of God for your sins, past, present, and future, absorbed in Christ. He is your propitiation. And you'll notice it says that it is God that put him forward. This was God initiated. We never want to get the wrong idea about the cross, friends, that somehow, you know, there was the Father who was really angry with us, but Jesus the Son, who's loving and kind, he, he, uh, he steps in to save us from the Father's wrath. Now, all of this, friends, was... God's love, God, the triune God's love and work in putting forth his son. He initiated, put forth his son. And you know what's so cool? Look over at chapter five of Romans. In beginning of verse three, he says, he's, he talked about in verse two, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, right? Like we're looking forward to heaven because of what God has done for us. That's our hope, right? But not only that, verse 3, but we rejoice in our sufferings, which is an odd thing to say, admittingly, but listen, hear him out. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let me just pause right there and say this is one reason that we know the trials that you endure are not the result of God's wrath. They are the result of God's love now working for you wonderful things, growing you into the likeness of Christ. And throughout them, God's love by his spirit is poured out into your hearts, reminding you that God says to you, I love you, This isn't penalty and payment for sin. This isn't the result of my wrath. I love you now. But then he goes on to talk a little bit more about this love. Look at verse six. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. <laughs> for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, 
perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what Paul's showing us is that when God put forth his son to absorb that wrath that was due to you, what is that a demonstration of? What, what, what attribute, among others, I get it, but what attribute should stand out at the cross, not just his wrath, but God's what? Love. Since therefore, verse 9, we have now been justified by his blood, a phrase that he says, we were way back in, uh, or back in chapter 3, that he put forth his son as a propitiation by his blood, same phrase. Now he says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, the wrath of God coming. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. In other words, friends, again, cross work of Christ, perfect propitiation, all the wrath has been absorbed. Now, poured out to you is God's love and grace and mercy. And since we can look back and see what God has done for us while we were sinners, how much more now can we know that he's going to bring all this work to completion? How much more now can we be guaranteed of this steadfast love to us all the way through, all the way to the end? This was a great act. Chapter 3, verse 25, the propitiation by his blood, this great act, this great demonstration of God's love for his people. We should never doubt it then. John said this in 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, we were enemies of God, but that he loved us freely and sent his son to be the, there it is, propitiation for our sins, right? Side note here, can I just give a gracious warning? In John chapter 3, verse 36, it says that whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But listen now, the wrath of God remains on him. I have to put that out because I want to say, you have a wrath problem by nature. And if you do not trust in Jesus Christ and receive the wonderful blessings of the cross that flow from the cross. Friends, know this. The wrath of God remains on you. So now flee from the wrath to God to come and look right now to Jesus Christ. Say, what do I do? What do I do to know that I'm forgiven? What do I know to know that I'm justified? What do I do to know that there's no more wrath uh, towards me for my sins that I know are there? What do I do? You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You trust in him. You remember Jesus in the garden? I want to do something here as we start to uh, wind this down to a conclusion. But do you remember Jesus in the garden before he went to the cross? So he had his disciples in that upper room and he instituted the Lord's Supper. We looked at last week and I'm gonna give us here another reference to the Lord's table, give you something to think about as it relates to propitiation. But Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane right before the cross and he knows that's where he's going and he brings, calls himself Peter, James, and John. He says, pray with me a little while, my soul. He, he starts to act in a way they had not seen him in the three years they had followed him. You might even say, I think, I would believe this probably to be true, that the way Jesus started to respond to the thought of the cross coming was for them they thought out of character for him. The Bible tells us that he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he told his disciples, just pray with me for a little while. My soul is sorrowful even unto death. In other words, I feel like I could die right now. Luke tells us that he drops to the ground and begins sweating out droplets of blood onto the ground. What was happening within him physiologically was so intense that blood was beginning to come through his pores. And he prayed to the Father, revealing to us what the problem was. It wasn't just the physical suffering of the cross he was going to endure. I mean, that was horrendous. And anyone would feel the anxiety of it approaching and be fearful of it. But many of Jesus' people throughout the past have been martyrs in very gruesome ways, been killed and stayed pretty stalwart and confident all the way through to the end. And Jesus, as the perfect incarnate Son of God, would have been the bravest and most courageous man that ever lived. What was this reaction? Well, it's revealed in his prayer, Matthew 26, 39, going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father... If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This cup, what is a cup? A cup is something we drink from. What cup is he referring to? That he's pleading for it to pass. Well, again, a second time, verse 42, he went away and prayed, my father if this cannot pass unless I drink it, the cup, your will be done. What is the cup and why is Jesus so horrified at the thought of drinking it? Well, there are several verses in the Old Testament prophets that enlighten this, but I think the one that enlightens this the most is Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 15 and 16. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink it and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Friends of the cup that shook Jesus to his core 
in horrific anticipation of the cross he was about to go to was the cup of the wine of the wrath of God. And on that cross, God gives to the Son, here's the cup of my wrath. Now drink it in full for your people. Absorb it in yourself. Friends, that's propitiation. When you come forward this week and you're going to take the Lord's Supper and you're going to take bread and you're going to take what? The cup. Do you notice it was the verse 25 back in chapter 3? It's verse 25. It's the whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. What does the cup represent? It's filled with the blood of Christ. And he gives it to you to drink and receive and intake and absorb and enjoy the grace and love of God because Jesus for you took a different cup, a cup you will never be made to drink, not ever ever, ever. You will never be made to drink this cup if you are in Christ. It's the cup of the wrath of God for you, for your sins. Can you see why we say, sometimes we'll use terminology, we observe the Lord's Supper, and sometimes we say what? We celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a cause of celebration because of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ on the cross. And friends, of course, how do you receive all of these blessings? How do you receive it all? You receive it by faith. That's why he says, he put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Notice, and I'll just mention this and you can... Look into this a little more. I think I spoke to it last week. This cross work of Christ, this propitiation, this this sacrifice by his blood, the penalty that paid was the only way that God could do it. Verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins and he cannot do that because he is righteous, because he is holy. He cannot just take your sin or mine and sweep it under the rug. It must be atoned for. And that's what his son was doing at the cross, making atonement for your sins. And this demonstrated his righteousness so that right now, at the present time, verse 26, in this very moment, in this very room, he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, look to Jesus Christ now by faith. He is the suffering Savior who invites you to himself by faith who turns away none Do not tarry till you are better, nor of fitness fondly dream. The only fitness he requireth is to feel your need of 
him. That's the gospel truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your love demonstrated in it. We thank you for your spirit who pours it out into our hearts. Let's us see it so clearly as for us. Now I pray that as we go about into this week, we would live as gospel people, filled with your love, your holiness, your righteousness, and the freedom and the blessedness of people who know their sins are forgiven. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.